Welcome to the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society. Welcome to ITSP Magazine. You're listening to a new episode of Stories from Space Podcast, where your host, Matthew Williams, examines the history of human spaceflight, the breakthroughs that revolutionized our understanding of the universe and our place in it, and the brave individuals who work tirelessly to advance the frontiers of our understanding. Knowledge is power, now more than ever. The authors acknowledge that this podcast was recorded on the traditional unceded lands of the Lekwungen peoples. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Stories from Space. I'm your host, Matt Williams, and today I want to pick up where I left off in our last episode, where we discussed biosignatures. And to recap, those are the chemical indications of life, or what we would associate with biological processes, and basically what astrobiologists plan to look for when studying exoplanets in the coming years. Well, today, as promised, I wanted to discuss the other side of things, which is the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. Now, this search is where we're engaged not only in the search for life itself, but for advanced life. Life that has evolved to the point where it has achieved the sort of things that we take for granted here on Earth. A technological civilization, one that is capable of communicating with us across the cosmos. Now, in this search, what scientists are looking for are technosignatures, or evidence of technological activity. So this raises the question, what do we consider to be examples of technological activity? Well, for starters, there's narrowband radio transmissions, which is what all SETI surveys conducted to date have looked for. Ever since the invention of radio, it has been theorized that, since radio waves propagate through space very well, if we simply listen to the stars at the right frequencies and aiming our radio antennas in the right direction, we should be able to pick up extraterrestrial transmissions. But, as astronomers have been thinking ever since the first SETI experiments began roughly 60 years ago, there has got to be any number of potential means through which advanced intelligence, advanced civilizations could be altering their environment or communicating or, in terms of transportation, just getting around. All of these would produce potential technosignatures that we would not fail to notice. So, the question then is, what else should we be looking for? And this is where things get really very complicated. And it was Jill Tarter, famed astronomer and SETI researcher who was portrayed in Carl Sagan's book Contact. The protagonist, who was played by Jodie Foster in the film adaptation, was based on Jill Tarter's life. She summed it up very well in 2007. If we can find technosignatures, evidence of some technology that modifies its environment in ways that are detectable, then we will be permitted to infer the existence at least at some time, of intelligent technologists. As with biosignatures, it is not possible to enumerate all the potential technosignatures of technologies we don't yet know it, but we can define systematic search strategies for equivalents of some 21st century terrestrial technologies. So much like biosignatures, when humanity is looking out at the cosmos and trying to find evidence of advanced life, life that relies on technological applications like we do, 
we are basically confined to the low-hanging fruit approach. We are confined to looking for technology and civilization as we know it. And here too, our framework is very narrow. Currently, humanity knows of only one species that is technologically dependent to the point that it would be noticed from space, and that's us. Humans certainly don't have a monopoly when it comes to intelligence, but to the best of our knowledge, at any rate, we are the only ones who would be capable of sending transmissions to space or conducting space exploration, and therefore that's what we're looking for when we're looking at the universe. Now, of course, a little background is necessary, a little primer on the history of SETI. So, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence began in earnest in 1960, when Dr. Frank Drake, the famed radio astronomer and the inventor of the Drake Equation, and his colleagues at the National Radio Astronomy Observatory in Greenbank, West Virginia, carried out the first modern attempt to detect interstellar radio signals. Now, they called this project... Project Ozma, which was named after the Queen from The Wonderful Wizard of Oz and the other stories in the series. The reason being was because this imaginary land of Oz was characterized as a place that was very far away, difficult to reach, and populated by strange and exotic beings. From April to July in 1960, for six hours a day, Dr. Drake and his colleagues used the Green Bank Telescope to listen to two star systems, Tau Ceti and Epsilon Eridani, two stars that are roughly 11 light-years away and are both believed to be potentially habitable. Ultimately, the project failed to find evidence of radio transmissions. However, that did not stop the field of SETI from advancing further and making several more attempts. These attempts have continued to this day, largely through the SETI Institute at Caltech, but have since expanded to include private efforts like Breakthrough Listen and have enlisted the help of citizen scientists through projects like SETI at Home. Unfortunately, none of these efforts have found any definitive evidence for life beyond Earth. Which brings us back to the Fermi Paradox. If life is so common in the universe, and we have every reason to speculate that it is, then why are we not seeing indications of it? Why aren't we hearing radio transmissions or other forms of technosignatures? It's the same question SETI researchers have been wondering from the very beginning. In fact, a year after Dr. Frank Drake and his colleagues conducted their pioneering experiment, the first scientific meeting to discuss the prospects of SETI was held at the Green Bank Observatory. Now, to prepare for this meeting, Drake prepared an equation which basically summarized the challenges that SETI researchers faced. And the way he expressed it mathematically, he basically said that N, representing the number of civilizations that humanity could communicate with at any given time, came down to a series of parameters which multiplied would give you an answer. And this included the rate of star formation in the galaxy, the fraction of those stars that would have planetary systems, the number of planets per solar system with an environment suitable for life, the fraction of planets that would actually develop life, the fraction of life-bearing planets where intelligent life would emerge, and the fraction of civilizations that would develop advanced communication technology, and finally, the average length of time in which civilizations could produce these signals. Now, one thing that is abundantly clear about the Drake Equation is that all these parameters... They are not things that we can define. We have no real values to input into this equation. We don't know 
Even today, 60 years later, we still cannot answer definitively how often life could emerge on a planet that has these suitable conditions or how often intelligence could emerge from that. These were all very speculative, but this was the point. This was a thought experiment. It was designed to show the difficulty in ascertaining just what the likelihood was that SETI would ever produce any viable signals, that they had ever stumble upon any clear examples of extraterrestrial communications or other technosignatures. But at the same time, a key takeaway from the Drake equation was that even if you factored conservatively, even if the values you inputted for most of these parameters were very low, the end result would still be a few civilizations that exist in our galaxy at any given time with which we could theoretically communicate. That is sort of implied with the equation, whether or not Dr. Frank Drake intended it to be that way or not. So once again, the Fermi paradox rears its ugly head. It says, why, if this equation is to be believed, and the odds are still good that there's someone out there we can talk to, even if life is rare, even if all the parameters are very conservative, then why is it we haven't heard from them? Why is it we still are finding no evidence of extraterrestrial life out there? And several proposed resolutions have been made for this question, and when it comes to SETI research and technosignatures, the obvious answer is that, well, we need to look harder, we need to cast a wider net, we need to consider looking for other potential forms of technology, because, of course, a very common thing in SETI is the notion that if we can think of it, if we can conceive it, based on known laws of physics, then chances are somebody else out there has too, and has possibly even done it already. And this has been the subject of theoretical research for decades, and a prime example came from Freeman Dyson, the famed English-American theoretical physicist and mathematician. He made a rather famous proposal in 1960, the same year Project Ozma was being conducted, and in a paper titled Search for Artificial Stellar Sources of Infrared Radiation, he proposed how a civilization could eventually create a megastructure that would enclose its entire sun, and this is what came to be known as the Dyson Sphere, and it's something that came up in the context of a previous episode, which was all about Nikolai Kardashev and the Kardashev scale. In any case, Dyson not only proposed how structures like these could eventually be built by sufficiently advanced civilization, but he proposed a means for looking for them. In the way he argued it, these spheres would, of course, be absorbing all of the light from their sun. It would be the optimal use of solar energy. Not only would they be absorbing that, but they would have to radiate waste heat. So if astronomers turned their infrared telescopes to the cosmos and looked for sources of infrared heat that really had no business being there, that this could be an indication of a megastructure. And as for Nikolai Kardashev, his Kardashev scale, the real idea there was the kind of energy frequencies that SETI researchers should be looking for based on how much energy a civilization could harness, and that's that was the basis of the Kardashev scale. Species that are capable of planetary mastery would be able to generate frequencies of this amount of energy, whereas those capable of mastering their entire solar system or their entire galaxy 
would be able to produce signal strengths that were exponentially more powerful. So these were two very key contributions that both took place in the 60s, back when SETI was first getting going. And since then, multiple revisions have been made to both of these proposals. There have been revised takes on the Kardashev scale, as we explored in a previous episode. Carl Sagan and Robert Zubin, for example, recommended that other means of measuring development should be used, like information mastery or planetary mastery. Whereas John Barrow, he proposed the Barrow scale, he said we should be looking for signs of civilizations mastering not outer space, but inner space, that they would be probing deeper and deeper into the very fundamental layers of the universe, developing nanotechnology and pycotechnology and femtotechnology and mastering and optimizing their environments to increasingly smaller scales rather than simply building bigger. And astronomers, astrophysicists, and engineers have weighed in with additional types of Dyson structures, Dyson rings, Dyson swarms, etc., etc., in order to expand the scope of what we could be looking for. And beyond megastructures and radio communications of increasing power and range, many, many more proposals have been made with everything from neutrinos and gravitational waves to directed energy and other forms of communication that humanity is currently researching or developing. And in 2018, NASA held a Technosignatures workshop where scientists from all over the world convened on Houston, Texas, and discussed possible Technosignatures and the viability of looking for them and the kinds of scientific returns they could expect and whether or not these searches could be done using existing technology or if they'd have to wait a while. And all these factors were weighed off against each other, and the report that they compiled shortly thereafter, NASA's Technosignature Report, it indicated what they considered to be the best and most viable technosignatures that we could be looking for right now. Now, among them, radio technosignatures were once again weighed and evaluated to be a very good bet. They propagate well through space, and they are technology that we know works, so it made several recommendations, one of which was to continue looking for them and ways in which the search could be refined and expanded. It also took into account optical or near-infrared lasers, which is something that is in part inspired by the work of Professor Philip Lubin at the University of California, Santa Barbara. And for years, him and his colleagues at the UCSB Experimental Cosmology Group, they have been developing lasers or directed energy proposals and applications for everything from asteroid defense to interstellar propulsion. And this is something that he and others are since pursuing with Breakthrough Initiative's Project Starshot, and as he wrote in a paper several years ago, we could be looking for signs of these technosignatures, because if we're thinking of sending a probe to Alpha Centauri using a directed energy in a light sail, somebody else will likely be doing the same, and there's also plenty of potential for directed energy as a means of communication, and yes, also asteroid defense. So we could see spillover, light flashes, from wherever this technology is being employed. So that is considered another viable technosignature. And as I mentioned, these are considered technosignatures that scientists could be looking for today. 
In the near term, they also considered how civilizations could be communicating with wavelengths that had been previously unexplored, such as the millimeter or submillimeter radio wavelengths, the ultraviolet, and other frequencies, which we have the tools to look for, but these have been confined to searching for natural sources rather than a targeted search for what could be signs of communications at these frequencies. And this would be a good time to also mention fast radio bursts. For many astronomers, it's been theorized that where repeating bursts are concerned, that these may not be natural in origin, that they may in fact be a sign of communications. Now, there's no evidence to support this, but it is something that astronomers have been pondering for some time, going all the way back to Kardashev. Because for every natural source of radiation in the universe, it is possible that there's a civilization that's harnessed it for the sake of communications, in much the same way that humanity has harnessed radio waves and microwaves and lasers to communicate. And the report even mentions megastructures and how these could be detected using various methods, one of which is the search for excess heat, as recommended by Freeman Dyson, another being how we could look for signs of transits, where a megastructure orbiting a star would pass in front of it relative to an observer and cause light from that star to dim ever so slightly, and how observing this pattern over time would indicate that, yes, there's something there that is causing the light to dim, and it's not an exoplanet, it's simply too large for that. So maybe it's an artificial construction of some kind. And several other considerations were mentioned and added in the report there too, in order to address emerging technologies. So, for example, how to incorporate artificial intelligence and machine learning into the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, or ETI, and how any emerging technology that humans are looking at right now, how these need to be considered as well. And they need to be added to the list of potential techno-signatures because, again, if we can think of it, if we're developing it, chances are somebody has already. Alas, it all comes back to what Jill Tarter said. We can't enumerate all the possibilities because there is such a thing as technology as we don't know it, just as there may very well be life out there as we don't know it. And if we don't know it, we don't know what to look for, and therefore, how are we supposed to search for it? But this has always been the paradox of SETI research and of astrobiology. You only really know what to look for if you are already familiar with it. Right now, the best we can do is to keep looking and try to refine the search. Because when it comes right down to it, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, it's barely scratched the surface of both our galaxy, the known universe, and even our solar system. While the search forces us to constantly confront our own ignorance and just how data poor the field of study is, well, the same thing is... In its own way, it's an enticement, it's an encouragement to keep looking, to look further afield, and consider other possibilities. And, as I said, in the meantime, the fact that if we can think of it, somebody else has probably developed it, that, that does serve as a rational touchstone. If we know that the physics are sound, then there's no reason why a more advanced species would not have tried to develop it already. And as for less advanced species, well, we know what their technological development, what it may look like based on our own. 
It all comes down to what we know works, what we can conceive of based on the same laws of physics that govern the entire universe. And in the coming years, these searches will benefit from all of the next generation telescopes like James Webb, like the Nancy Grace Roman, like the Extremely Large Telescope. It'll benefit from increasingly sophisticated machine learning algorithms, which are going to be able to tease out potential signatures and potential structure in background radio noise and in other frequencies of the electromagnetic spectrum. And also, we're likely to see machine learning play a vital role in exoplanet hunting, which will not fail to turn up signs of large structures orbiting other stars, or Clark bands, as they're called, the large rings of satellites that would orbit a planet that has advanced telecommunications technology, much like we do now, and as we'll continue to do, only more so in the future. In the end, all of this gives us something to look for. It gives us theoretical constraints, but also specific targets. And that search is only going to get more intense and more sophisticated in the future as Breakthrough Listen continues to probe our galaxy, and even more sophisticated instruments are brought online, radio telescopes like the Square Kilometer Array, and China's Fast Radio Telescope, and the CHIME Radio Telescope in British Columbia, Canada, all of these instruments are going to be dedicated to looking for patterns in the ether, if you will. They're going to be looking for things in our universe for which there isn't a natural explanation. And like the search for life itself, astrobiology, and the hunt for habitable exoplanets, the search is only going to get more exciting, more in-depth, more detailed, and, in all likelihood, more productive in the not-too-distant future. SETI research has been ongoing for 60-some-odd years, but we are only now approaching a point where it could become as data-intensive as any other field of astronomy or cosmology. And, as I like to say, the Fermi Paradox only needs to be solved once. We just need evidence of one extraterrestrial civilization, living or dead, doesn't matter, and the paradox is resolved for all time. So while SETI as a field of research, it might sometimes seem like it's a long and difficult and time-consuming and expensive search for something that may never turn up, we only have to be right once. One roll of the dice, and we will know with certainty and for all eternity that humanity is not alone in the universe. I'm Matt Williams, and this has been Stories from Space. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Stories from Space podcast with Matthew Williams. If you learned something new and this podcast made you think, then share ITSPmagazine.com with your friends, family, and colleagues. If you represent a company and wish to associate your brand with our conversations, sponsor one or more of our podcast channels. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey. You can always find us at the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society.